says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined and believed. Among them are Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And Father, help us now as we continue in our worship of you and of your blessed son jesus christ we ask for the help of your holy spirit in this time of worship through opening the word of god and just looking to you to speak personally to our hearts what we need to hear bless your word lord and may your spirit speak to us what we need to hear from it and we ask together in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated You know, I think one of the greatest forms of deception on this earth is to think that you don't have to answer to anybody. There are a lot of different things that people can be blinded to and deceived about, but thinking that you don't have to answer anybody, to me, has got to be probably one of the greatest forms of personal deception. Believing that lie has led many people into great error despite any feeling that we may have within that we don't have to answer to anybody we can do what we wish and don't have to answer to anyone the inescapable fact remains which is this one day every single human being is going to stand before God as their creator, as their maker. And despite what excuses we may have tried to hide behind, we will have to answer to God for our life on this earth, for the choices we made, for the decisions that we carried out. We are accountable to God. And despite what anyone's life experiences have been, and we all have different things that affect us and influence us and shape us, and I I don't want to diminish that, and the hurts and the heartaches and the things that may make us confused or stumble, but playing the victim card long term doesn't work when you stand with God either. Because God will hold every single one of us accountable for what we chose to do from our first breath until our last or prior to that if the Lord returns before we get a chance to take our last breath and we face him even before death. But we're all going to give account to God. And so we have to take personal responsibility for what we did and didn't do and our personal choices morally and spiritually because we're going to give account to God for that someday. Every one of us will answer to God. The question, therefore, becomes this. Are you ready? Are you personally ready to answer to God? You don't get to stand there with your mom or dad holding your hand or your spouse kind of disputing and arbitrating on your behalf. Well, please let him in or please let her in. It doesn't work that way. 
We each stand before God and give personal account for our life. And I want you to know, if you haven't prepared, God has provided a way to properly be prepared. That's the good news. The good news is God has made a way for us all to be prepared to answer to him, to be ready for heaven, despite our sinful ignorance that we all have within us. And that's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and wrong things that we do to make us ready and prepared to enter into heaven when we stand before God. And that's what our passage is addressing, being ready to answer to God, because one day we all have to do that. As people. Now, the backdrop, certainly this morning's Bible study, is crucial because, unfortunately, what we kind of did was we sort of interrupted Paul in the middle of one of his sermons. Not really the nicest thing to do, but uh, we did it for sake of time, and so that we could partake of communion this morning, we broke up his sermon kind of in, in two parts. We left off with Paul, remember, speaking to a group of philosophers and great thinkers there in Athens at the Areopagus, the place where they met to discuss thoughts and you know great ideas they had. And so kind of to give the backstory of the events to set the stage for where we pick up in verse 28 and finish out the rest of the chapter in Paul's message is really crucial for us to be reminded of it or to be informed of it if you weren't here with us last week. So for sake of that, if you'll bear with me, look back in verse 16. Let's just kind of read through these verses to set the context of where we pick it up in verse 28. It tells us, verse 16, while Paul waited for them, that's Silas and Timothy there at Athens, this place of great intellectual and educational thought where all the philosophers come from, Aristotle and Plato, that's what Athens is known for. It says his spirit was provoked, verse 16, within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And we talked about how not only was it a place of great thinking and Greek culture and philosophy, but it also was a place, was really the birthplace of a lot of the Greek mythology and the worship of all the different gods. It's estimated upwards to somewhere around 30,000 different deities and gods were created by the people of Athens. Pretty much whatever kind of god you wanted, needed, or whatever you wanted to do, you just created a deity and then you could worship that and idolize it and practice those things. So Paul, it says, was stirred when he saw this, this sad condition, the devil having so many con you know, deceived, just worshiping all these foreign deities and idols, statues and images. Therefore, verse 17, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, both with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there, trying to reason with people spiritually, of their condition and, and tell them about the truth of God's word and who Jesus was as the Savior. Verse 18 says, Then certain Epicurean Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of perhaps more foreign gods. Because Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. That was the focus of what he was trying to tell people. There's a, a God who came, died for you because of the sins you committed against him, and then he rose from the dead. And he's alive, and now he is the one who can forgive your sins, and he's the one you must give account to. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, the place of meeting for the philosophers, saying, May we know more of this new doctrine of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear some new thing. They're always looking for a new idea, some further understanding. They were always searching and never finding. They were always looking for what would satisfy, fulfill. They were people much like many today who are seeking and searching and trying everything possible to find what the inner need is in their life, but always coming up empty. So always then looking for the next thing, to drink from the next well, if you would, the next idea. So Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of them, being given this opportunity there at the Areopagus. And this is what he began to say, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. You indeed seem to have a desire, Paul says, to want to worship. And you're certainly looking and you're searching. He says, I can see you're searching spiritual things. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, verse 23, he says, I even found one altar with this inscription to the unknown God. That is in case there's a God that we didn't know about yet or we haven't created yet. Maybe this could be the, the unknown God. And so they even as kind of a catch-all had this unknown God. So Paul capitalizes on this saying, therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And who is he? Verse 24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it that is the creator of all things, including humanity, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands like all their deities and idols, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He's the self-existent God who is the one who gives all things and needs nothing from humanity. He says, verse 25, for he, God, the creator of all of us, he gives to all life and breath and all things. Our very life is in his hands. He gives us the very breath in our lungs, keeps our lungs breathing and our heart beating. Our very life is in his hands. And he says, and he's made from one blood every nation to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's even determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, where they lived and when they were on the earth as well. So that, verse 27, we left off with this, so that humanity, mankind, no matter where they are on the earth, should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So Paul kind of culminated as we left off there last time, explaining sort of general revelation of who God is, that he created us, that we're accountable to this God, and that this one God loves all of humanity equally from one blood. God doesn't see multiple different races. God sees the human race. And he says from one blood, all of humanity has come from one bloodline. He loves all of humanity. And he says he is even predetermined the times that we would be on this earth. That is the very generation we would be born in, the very year and day and hour of our existence and all the timetables of when everything in our life would happen to us, as well as put boundaries around our lives. That is, he put us on the continent and the country and the state and in the family and everything that of where we needed to be circumstantially with the purpose that he knew in his wisdom that would be the best possible chance that I'd come to a place to reach out at some point in my life and grab and try and find God if you're real I need you and that he'd be able to reveal himself that nothing in your life that's happened to you folks is random 
that God in his wisdom said by letting him or her be born in this generation and not that generation to live at this time on the earth rather than any other time on the earth to be specifically in this geographic location America not Africa Germany not France to be with this specific family oh if you knew the family I grew up in listen it may have been tough and I don't want to diminish that but every single experience that's happened in your life, even your own personal bad decisions that you contributed to, every single thing, God predetermined all that because in his love for you, he said that's the best possible chance that at some point she'll come to a time frame where she'll say, God, if you're out there and this is real and it's more than just religion, I need you, God. I need you in my life and that we'd actually find God, that we'd actually experience God in a personal way. And he says, the wonderful thing is if we just reach out and blindly grasp, we find him because he's not far from any one of us. He's ever present, making himself available. So verse 28, he goes on with his message saying, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As also, he says, some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So Paul quotes what two of their modern poets among Greek culture actually had said, and he quotes two poets in their day to illustrate his point. He quotes one's from Herodotus and another time from Epimenides. So he makes these two quotes from secular reasoning from Greek poets and he says even your own poetic writers Paul says understand that everybody was made by God even your own poets seem to recognize in their writings that somehow we're all sustained by a deity bigger than us the two quotes he makes here point to God as the source of human life because he says we are all God's offspring that God's the source who gives life to every being and that also God is the sustainer of life that we need God to even survive because he says even to live and to move and to have our being and function that wouldn't even be possible if God weren't kindly sustaining us and taking care of us even if we want nothing to do with him now though the concepts are secular in their reasoning they did convey generally true ideas spiritually so Paul kind of took something that they could relate to that was relevant to them in their culture and as a wise communicator, he built a bridge to arouse the attention of his listeners. He, he, he took something that they could relate to. Jesus was a master of doing this. Jesus lived in a very agrarian society. Jesus always talked about farming and seeds. People had flocks and herds. And so Jesus would use illustrations that people could connect to. He would speak in a way that says that the common people would hear him gladly. And this is what Paul's doing. He takes these two quotes and he says, look, even your own poets seem to understand that nobody could survive apart from the kindness and just the general care of a loving God. He says, for your own poets say that in him we live and we move and, and we have our being. He helps us just to function through every day. And he says, even your own poets indicate that we've all come from God originally, that he made us and gave us our very life, that, that in him, he says, not only we live, move, have our being, but another one of your poets say, for we are also his offspring. That is the God that he was speaking to them about. Now, Paul says these things because understanding those realities 
would help them further in their spiritual reasoning. He's going to use this to bring about now the spiritual truth that they need. Look what he says as he goes on in verse 29. He says, your own poets say, for we are his offspring, verse 29, therefore, he says, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. So notice, Paul says, look, it is true. We are the offspring of God. The offspring of God. He agrees that every person is, listen, pay attention, the offspring of God physically. And there's a difference here. That we are the offspring of God physically. Though we do not start life, the Bible teaches, as children of God spiritually, that is something that must happen at a decisive point in our life where we understand our condition spiritually and when we respond to God and receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God enters within us and our spiritual life begins. Jesus talked about it as a spiritual birth, being born again. Your spiritual life begins when you're born spiritually, when you have your own experience with God in a personal way. That's what the Bible speaks of. We don't begin life as a child of God spiritually. The world likes to think that. It makes people kind of feel good. We're all children of God. You know, coexist. I mean, just we're all God's children. Well, physically, yes, the Bible says we're God's offspring in the sense that physically we're creations of God. God has given to all life and breath and all things. We've all been physically given our life existence by a loving creator that is absolutely true and that's what paul's getting to here even as we're physical offspring of god he's going to convey here the idea is that in the same way with parents and children or you know even among the animal kingdom the offspring always reflects the parental source well Paul says we're the offspring of God. And Genesis chapter 1 says that all of us in humanity, human beings, were created originally in the image and likeness of God. That is, we were created to be image bearers as God's special creation as human beings. We were created to be image bearers to reflect God's nature and his attributes. And though indeed that's been marred by God's you know, sin, God's original tension has been marred, as human beings, we're supposed to bear God's image. So that's why Paul says in verse 29, since we are the offspring of God, we're supposed to reflect his image. We ought not to think, because that would be foolish, that the divine nature, that God's nature, is like gold or silver or stone, one of their idols, or something that could be shaped by art or by man's devising. Paul points out that if we understand that God created us, and we say, okay, I, I, I can accept that, that God created us. Well, Paul's reasoning here is this. We always know that a creator is superior to whatever it creates, right? If you're good with your hands and you're a woodworker or what, and you can create something with your hands, as the creator, what you create is inferior. The creator is always superior to whatever it creates. So he says, if that's the case and we know God's the creator, it would be faulty reasoning and error to think that as human beings, anything we could create in the likeness of God, an idol or some God that we create, it would be crazy to think that if we can decide what God is going to be like, that that's a reference and a picture of what the divine nature is like. Because that would basically be saying that God is less than us. We created God. 
that God is inferior to us. It would just be faulty reasoning and it would be something that doesn't make sense. So Paul says we should not think that God is something that can be shaped or devised by human reasoning or man's devising. Now, that being said, he's saying God's not like some cold dead idol that you're making all these. You're making all these idols. He says God's a living God. He's not like gold or silver. His value is way above that. He's not like a dead, cold, lifeless piece of metal that's uncaring, that's indifferent and uninvolved. And it's wrong for us to think that we can shape God by our own reasoning to think that we can decide what God is like. That's what they were doing with their 30,000 gods. They were deciding what God was like in their perception. And folks, listen, there are a lot of people today still that they're trying to create God in their image and according to their likeness, right? Have we not been there once, maybe before we were following the Lord ourselves or we talked to people and we realized, that oh, I believe in God, but the God they've created is a God in their own image. They've created their perception of what they want God to be like. And through their own human devising and reasoning, what happens is, is people create God according to their own thinking to accommodate what they want for their life. So I think God is loving. And so therefore, because I think God is loving, I think God in his love allows people to just do whatever they want because he is loving like a grandpa. He's just a great big grandpa in the sky, right? And, 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 and we just, we distort the true reality of what, and again, that's your perception of God, but it's a wrong perception. You've created God in your image and in your likeness. Look, it is a dangerous thing to make God be what we want him to be or what we think that he is. Hey, let me just say on God's behalf, God is supreme. God is ruler over all. God is not who we think God is. God is who he is, period. He's secured himself. He doesn't change with the postmodern world. He doesn't say, well, look, this is a different age. Things are different now. No, God is who he is. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the eternal God who was who he was before we ever existed and will continue to be that throughout all of time and eternity. God is who he is. And so we have to be very, very careful. The only safe way to understand God's divine nature is by looking into the word of God, the eternal word of God, which is the revelation of the eternal God. That's the only way to safely determine what is God really like? Well, what does the word of God say God is like? That's the safe way to determine his nature. Well, Paul goes on, verse 30, to say, in light of this, truly these times of ignorance that they and many of us contribute to, he says, God is overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because, verse 31, he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul puts together quite a mouthful there in those two sentences, but understand, this is sort of the culmination of his message now. He's bringing it to a point, to a place in his revelation of God as he concludes to demonstrate, okay, now I've revealed to you what is true about God 
And therefore, I want you to know as well that God requires a response in regards to what God has just revealed to you in the light that he's given to you of himself, that God is our creator. We've been created by him. We owe our life to God. We may all start off life living ignorant of that reality, but once God gives us light and gives us personal understanding, Paul is going to say here very clearly that we then have a responsibility to change and to turn from our wrong ways and to get right with God. And getting right with God and changing we must, Paul says, because a time of judgment is coming when we're all going to have to answer to God. So Paul declares some further spiritual truths regarding these things. Look at me in verse 30. The first thing we take note of that he says there is that God, though a holy and an awesome God of power, for quite some time has been very merciful. You see what he says there, verse 30? He says, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. This all-powerful, holy, awesome, incredible, mighty God who created everything and who's sustaining the very breath in every human being's lungs, keeping their heart beating. He says, this all-powerful God, he says, for quite a long time, he's been very mercifully and patiently overlooking things that he could judge very severely if he wanted to. He's saying God's been very patient. He's been very, very merciful. Understanding people are blinded by sin's deception, living ignorant of the truth. God patiently offers time. And he mercifully overlooks offenses. I said that he could judge very severely. I mean, think of that universally, just with society. I mean, folks, look in our world today and then look back through human history and think of all the things we have done in humanity that have disregarded God, that have spit in the face of God, that have been greatly offensive to God, things that we have done, the utter disregard and offensive things humankind has done on this planet, and God has mercifully restrained. He has patiently endured and withheld righteous and real judgment that we could have experienced on this planet. And God's been very patient, very merciful. If that weren't enough, just think personally in regards to our own individual lives. Look in this room this morning. We all know how many wrong things we have done. The ways throughout our life from our first breath to where we are this morning, how merciful and patient God's been with us. Just ponder for a moment, not too long because you'll get really condemned. In your own brain. Because nobody knows everything that's happened in your life, what you thought, said, done, than you and God. Think of the things that you have done, the things that you have at times been involved in, how long, how many times God put up with you, with what you did with what you were doing, for how long maybe you were doing something and how God mercifully, patiently, amidst our stubborn pride or our selfish, out-of-line behavior, just disregarding God in our ways of error, yet God showed us mercy and withheld punishment and restrained from giving us what we deserve, patiently enduring. He says, God has been patient. He's overlooked for quite some time. But then the second thing he says, there comes a time when God expects change. When God demands change. You see what he says, verse 30 says, but now God commands all men everywhere to 
repent. Now God commands those who have received understanding to respond rightly. Once light has been given to the one who's been living ignorantly in the dark and disregarding God, Paul says, now that you have been given light, God expects more. He says, God demands that you change your ways, that we would repent, that we would turn and get things right. The word repent, that's what it speaks of, just turning around. Repent means to, biblically, to change your mind in the way you were thinking about something so that as the result of a change of mind, you would change your actions and your behaviors. The idea is you're walking north and you come to the place where you say, you know what, I admit walking north is wrong. I need to turn around and walk south. I may have been walking north for a long time and I thought going north, I thought it was okay. I thought it was right, but I now admit going north was wrong. I, what I thought was wrong, I was wrong. And so I'm gonna turn around and we're going to go the opposite direction. That's what repentance is, really biblically. Repentance is to have a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's a time to stop what we've been doing and go the other way, to follow the Lord's way. It's a moment where we come to that place where we change our way of thinking and decide what we have been doing is wrong, and then we also decide we're going to stop doing that which is wrong and we're going to turn around and go the opposite way and we're simply going to start doing what's right instead by making a change. Now, how important or how essential is it to repent? Well, when I read verse 30, he says, God commands all men to repent. That sounds pretty important. He doesn't say God suggests it. He doesn't say God suggests repentance and change for a better way. He says God demands it. He's God. He requires it. He's keeping my heart beating. He's keeping my lungs breathing. I'm going to answer. So says, God demands it. And look, folks, always remember this. Whenever I find a conflict between me and what God is or me and what God says is right or wrong, it's never God's job to change. It's my job to change. If there's ever a question, well, me and God don't agree, I can tell you who's wrong. Same works for your life. It's never God's job to change. It's our job to change. God commands us to repent. And notice who's to repent as well there in verse 30. He says, all men everywhere, just in case you thought you might not be included. All men everywhere. No one's excluded from the responsibility to repent and change. Everybody has to repent and make a change. The reason, here's why, is because every man, woman, boy, girl, anywhere on the planet, we've all done the same thing made mistakes. We're all guilty of things. The Bible says there's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the standard of God that we're all guilty before God, so we have a universal need to change our ways, which means this. At some point in our human existence, we have to come to a place of recognizing that ourselves, and we have to repent initially. That is for salvation. That's the first form of repentance repenting initially for salvation jesus himself who was god in mark chapter one came to galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of god saying listen to what he said the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand it's available repent and believe the gospel jesus said at some point in your life you have to recognize and accept before god you are a sinner you have been sinning against him no matter what you thought about yourself before and you got to be willing to make that turn and change and believe upon the good news of the gospel thank you jesus that though i've sinned i'm turning away from what i once was and now i believe i need you to forgive me and that you died for me on the cross 
It's necessary. Paul speaking as well to a group of very religious people, those who consider themselves religious. Excuse me, Peter. Listen to what Peter said in Acts 2 to people who thought themselves religious. It says, when they heard his message about Jesus, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to the religious group, repent. No, we're religious. Peter would say, I know, (laughs) but you're still a sinner. Well, no, no, we've been raised in the ways of spiritual things. Peter would say, I know, but you're still a sinner. Repent, he said. Repent, turn, recognize. Let every one of you be baptized, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, that need to at some point turn from recognizing you have been a sinner and are sinful and turn to Jesus to let him forgive your sin. And perhaps today, that's something maybe, even in this room, that you may still need to do. You don't gradually kind of get in right graces with God. And at some point, there needs to be a decisive decision where you choose to repent of how you once lived your life and turn to Jesus and accept his forgiveness for you personally and have that encounter with the Lord yourself. If that hasn't happened yet, listen, it can happen today. Call upon the name of the Lord. Choose to repent. Turn away from what you've been doing and what you've been believing and choose to believe upon Jesus as the only way to be forgiven for your sin as the only way to get into heaven. Turn from the way it's been. Turn to the Lord and he'll be gracious to you. But look, even beyond salvation initially, we also, for those of us, most of us in this room this morning who are Christians, we also need to repent regularly. We all need to repent continually, periodically. Every person at times, even as a follower of Jesus, can start to head in wrong ways. Agreed? Okay, some of you want to be honest. That should be the most resounding amen in Calvary Chapel ever. You know, we, we all fail at times. Even in following Jesus, we turn away. We you know, get ourselves involved in things. Again, Revelation 2 and 3, which is Jesus' seven letters to seven churches. As he writes to believers, repeatedly, as Jesus is speaking to Christians in the church, believers, he repeatedly said, repent, repent. You need to change some things, turn away from some things. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, you've left your first love. Remember from where you've fallen and repent. He says, your heart is that once was so passionate for me, it's, you've kind of left it. You, you, just, you don't have that first love that you want. And so he says, remember from where you fell from and repent, change. Fall back in love with me again. Begin to do those first things again. Jesus writing to the other churches tells them to repent of sins of idolatry and sexual immorality and hypocrisy, treating people wrongly, of apathy and of lukewarm attitudes spiritually. And these are all believers. These were churches he was writing to. Churches where there was sexual immorality going on. People who came to church on Sunday and then looked at pornography on Monday. People who came to church on Sunday and then slept with someone who's not their marital partner later in the week. People who in their lives come to church and go through the motions, but Jesus says, your heart is just so lukewarm. I mean, you come there, but you're just enduring the church service and you're just very lukewarm and apathetic spiritually. Jesus said, I don't want it to be like that. 
people who in their lives can be Christians and they know the Lord, but yet they're living in hypocrisy and duplicity or people who are Christians and yet they're treating people wrongly. And they're Christians, but they're bitter towards somebody. They're angry. They're justifying that their grudge is, well, I mean, I, my, mine's a sanctified grudge. I mean, I have, a, I have a sanctified righteous. I can even find a Bible verse for why I can hate that person so much. And I wouldn't say I hate them. I just treat them like I hate them. And Jesus says, no, no. Repent of that stuff. Look, this morning, folks, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you or I about some sin in our life, wherever you're at in that process, repent. It's a gift from God to be able to change, that the Holy Spirit tells us we need to change and gives us the power to do that. And notice when God commands repentance, Look at this last word, which is very important. He says, truly these times of ignorance God will look, but now God commands us to repent. You see that word? I have a circle in my Bible. Now. When should we repent? Now. When God shows us we need to change, do not delay. When God shows us repentance is needed, that is always the best time to turn away from error because delaying to change when God tells you you need to change is disregarding God's authority. Delaying to repent and turn away from something and stop doing something and turn back to the right direction when God puts his finger on in my life is disregarding the voice of God. So he says there's no better time to repent when God shows you need to than now. Just now. Just do it. Don't overthink it. He says, just respond and obey. God commands it. We obey it. And he gives us the most important reason for all of this because there's coming, he says, verse 31, a time of judgment. Look what he says. God commands all men to repent everywhere because, verse 31, he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained and has given us assurance of this by raising him, that's Jesus, from the dead. So humanity will be held accountable. For our accumulation of sin against God, God is not, let us remember, a weak, passive pushover. He's God. He's merciful. He's amazingly patient and slow to anger, but God's not going to be bulldozed by arrogant humanity. And people can act the way they want to act on TV and in the world and in culture and social media and, and just show utter contempt and disregard for God. But I tell you this, God's not a pushover. God's amazingly merciful. God's not going to be bulldozed by people who say, oh, you know, you know, the Bible's archaic and this is... God's not going to be bulldozed by that. God is going to hold people to account because God is who he is. He's a righteous judge and the ruler of all and God's going to have his way. And a righteous judge, if a judge is righteous, is going to deal with error properly, correct? That's what a, a righteous judge would do. And God's a righteous judge. And the Bible teaches that God has been patient, but it doesn't mean God is approving wrong things. And it says right there, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. He's appointed a day on which he will judge the world. Judgment is coming for the rejection of God and his ways. Humanity will be held responsible for the things that we have done to offend God. Sin will be punished, people will be judged, and many, sadly, will be sentenced to hell for their rejection of God and their refusal of what God offered lovingly and graciously in Jesus Christ, his son. 
Sad, but a reality that is on the horizon. You see what verse 31 says about God's judgment? It says he will judge the world in righteousness. That's how God will judge. He'll judge the world in righteousness. That is when God finally does judge, it's totally fair. It's righteous. He has every right and just basis for why he is judging when he does judge the world. God is not going to judge the world in wrath because one day, like you know, we do when we try and be patient and finally we just blow our top and then we just explode volcanically. That's not how God's going to judge the world. God's wrath is a settled, determined, righteous decision to punish evil when it must be punished or it would be unrighteous not to punish it. So when God judges the world, he has every reason to bring judgment, and the way he judges can't be questioned. It will be totally righteous in its basis, completely fair. And the way God will bring judgment to pass, as says verse 31, is by the man, that's Jesus Christ, whom he's chosen, ordained, and raised from the dead. Now that implies two things. First of all, that Jesus' sinless and righteous life as a man is the standard or basis that God is going to judge by. Jesus came to be the perfect representation of humanity, lived out a sinless life, died in our place on the cross for our sins. Then God raised him from the dead and he ascended back into heaven at the right hand of the Father to be a mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And by God raising Jesus from the dead, God assured the world that is the standard that my son just lived out, sinless perfection, to enter into heaven. Because that's who God is a man welcomed into heaven, his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus's life is the basis and standard and his resurrection validates that he's the standard to enter into heaven. That's what he means in verse 31 when he says, God's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take long for me to figure out I got a problem there because my life hasn't and nor does it ever measure up to Jesus's life. I fall short of his sinless... Now, so if his life is the standard to get into heaven, I fall short of that, I'm guilty. But here's the good news. Because God did what he did through Jesus and raised Jesus from the dead, because Jesus is alive, he can offer an exchange of his righteous life for my sinful life. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says to us. It says that the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that is, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he takes away our sin, forgives us, cleanses us, and then he gives to us his righteousness of a sinless life so that we're made acceptable and clean and pure so that we're acceptable to God to enter into heaven. It's the great exchange. He gives us his righteousness. And God says, because he's alive, you can be assured of this reality. We can have assurance of escaping the coming judgment of God through Jesus by turning to Jesus. Romans 5 tells us, having been justified and made innocent and righteous by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Paul told the Thessalonians that believers in Jesus wait for God's son from heaven and who raised him from the dead and it's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus does that. Through trust in Jesus, guilty people like you and I sinners can be delivered from the wrath that we deserve. We can escape the coming judgment by having our life joined with Jesus. We can escape the wrath of the sin of, that's coming against this world. And here's why this is important, because not only is Jesus 
the standard and Jesus the Savior, but Jesus also is going to be the judge, the Bible says. He's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ. That is because Jesus provided what he did and made a way and gives us a chance to be saved, he also has earned the right to be the actual judge for every single human soul. John chapter 5, Jesus spoke about that. He said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. See, we can come to Jesus now in this life to be forgiven of our sin, and he'll save us, and he'll forgive us, and he'll give us the gift of eternal life, and he'll be our Savior. Or, if a person rejects that, then one day they will stand, they will face righteous Jesus as their judge. And Jesus will say, I know about all your sin and I offered you so many times to believe upon me and you rejected me. And so therefore, I can righteously say you must be judged now. And Jesus will be the judge. So God offers that opportunity to every soul. And look at verse 32 to 34, the the response. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And Paul departed from them. Third response, however, some men joined and believed. And Luke records a few of those who did. Notice three different responses to hearing the truth, to being given an opportunity, to be ready to answer to God. It says some mocked. That is, they hardened their hearts. Verse 32, some made light of it. They ridiculed, they dismissed it. I mean, this uh, just... Paul, this is ridiculous. We don't need this. This is silliness. We're doing our own thing. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to have a party down there in hell. I'm just, and they mock it, right? They just ridicule it. They just dismiss it in irreverence. Others said, we want to hear you again about this. There's a second response. It's called delaying. It's called putting off responding to God. It's called forestalling and procrastinating responding to the Lord. They said, we're not ready to make a decision yet. We want to hear a little bit more. We want to go sin a little bit longer and and we'll come and listen to the sermon next week. But we're not ready to surrender yet. We're not ready to believe that yet. And look, waiting always implies that you assume, folks, that you have more time. That's what waiting implies. You're assuming you have more time. But what if you don't? What if God makes your last breath 5 p.m. today? I don't know that. So delaying when the Lord speaks to us and overthinking spiritual matters is one of the most dangerous things a human soul can do, to think that I have more time. The Bible says we should respond immediately. Now is the acceptable time. And notice verse 34 says the third response is that some did join themselves to become followers of Jesus. It says some believed. You see how simple it was to respond? They didn't have to do all kinds of religious things. They just needed to believe. And by believing, they joined and became followers of Jesus. How wonderful to just believe what's true for yourself. And choosing to believe that, they became followers of Jesus. And they became right with God and ready to stand before him. Because their sins were forgiven and they were ready to enter into eternal life. Hey, this morning, simple question. Have you believed Have you believed in your heart these things to be true? If you haven't, you still can. And if you have, as we celebrate communion, that's what we're relishing in. Lord, man, I deserve the judgment of God. And I believed for myself personally, and you forgave my sin, and you gave me the gift of eternal life. Lord, Lord, I 
I thank you so much for this. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Let's stand together and pray.